Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, November 10, 2013. The share ID number for Friday, November 8th, is 5428. This morning on A Vision for You, we present the serenity prayer and the steps. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In our search for increasing spirituality, the serenity prayer plays an important role. The steps, of course, a vital role. Joining us this morning to speak on the role the serenity prayer and the steps play in her life is Amy. Amy's a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland who has been practicing this way of life for quite some time and has a wealth of insight and experience to share with us this morning. Welcome to you, Amy. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone, this morning. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to uh, talk with you all today, and I pray to just carry the message of recovery and solution, and the solution that this program has to offer us in Overeaters Anonymous and the 12 Steps. Now, if you have a big book handy and a 12 and 12, that'd be great. I'll be pitching out some quotes here and there from the book. Um, and again, our topic is the Serenity Prayer and the Steps. And I believe that serenity prayer really is one of the most powerful prayers that we have in this program and that we can use it anywhere, anytime, and at any any phase of our recovery. And personally for me, when I use this prayer and I use it daily, it continually brings me back to the steps, which is exactly where I need to be to stay spiritually fit and therefore recovered. Because this program is about a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. And that's in order for that to happen via the 12 steps, there is a spiritual transformation that takes place. But I must always stay spiritually fit to stay recovered. But let me qualify here. As Leah said, I've, I've been blessed to be around uh, a few 24 hours. I came to Overeaters Anonymous in March of 83. Um, just suffered and struggled in the rooms for four and a half years. I'm a walking slogan, don't walk out five minutes before the miracle and came in, um, finally surrendered, beaten, and pummeled by this vicious disease in December of 87. And I've been recovered ever since. So that's coming up on uh, 26 years. If there was any way to do this disease, uh, trust me, I did it. Uh, Just to give you a picture of what I look like, I'm about a little shy of 5'8", and at my highest weight, I was pushed in a probably about 180, something like that. I stopped getting on the scale at around 170 or something like that. I might have put on another 10 or 15. So I was about 60 pounds, 50, somewhere between 50, 60, maybe 70 pounds overweight at one point. I'm also a uh, recovering anorexic, and at one point uh, I was probably 40 pounds underweight, somewhere around 102, 103. And I'm also a recovered bulimic. Uh, my top bulimic phase, I was puking 10 and 12 times a day. I'm a compulsive exerciser, you know, four or five hours a day. I've uh, surrendered my knees to three knee surgeries to this type of exercise. I mean, trust me, if there was a way to do it, 
I did this disease. I am a critical level compulsive overeater, and I am powerless, but for the grace of God, my higher power, and this program. And I just want to say that if you're new to this program and you're new on the line today, I can't recommend high enough, uh, strong enough, uh, you know, to understanding the disease and understanding what this is all about and the solution that we have to offer is to get on the vision for you Monday through Friday and go through the big book with us. You know, look at the doctor's opinion that describes our twofold nature of our disease, the, the, the physical allergy, but the greater aspect of the mental obsession. Go through the doctor's opinion. See that there is a solution. Identify with Bill's story that talks about the behaviors and the mannerisms that go with alcoholism. Swap out alcohol, put in food. Swap out alcoholism and put in compulsive overeating. And I don't know about you, but it had me. It, 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 it described me, and um, the recovery is here. But for purposes of, of this talk today, I, I want to talk about the serenity prayer and how it just absolutely correlates with the 12 steps and supports our program. You know, and there's a reason why we hear it at meetings. You know, many sponsor sponsee calls stop, uh, st- start their, their talks. With, with this type of prayer, um, and it's even written in the 12 and 12 on page 41 at the end of step three. It's an incredibly powerful prayer. So for history purposes, just to find out more about the serenity prayer myself, I, I went on the uh, Internet and I researched, and for those of you who are interested, I, I found it fascinating. It's a great history. I won't go on too much about it, but just to give you some background of this serenity prayer, um, It's said that it goes back possibly as far back as 480 A.D. with a Roman philosopher, you know, similar quotes that sort of track along the same lines of this serenity prayer. And then 8th century, an Indian Buddhist quoted something very similar. And one of my favorites is in the 11th century, a Jewish philosopher named, and I'm probably going to butcher the name, so, so forgive me if I do, Solomon Ibran Gabriel, who quoted as saying, at the head of all understanding is realizing what is and when, what cannot be and the consoling of what is not in our power to change. Sounds very similar to the serenity prayer, doesn't it? And then there's the when it started to get down on paper. At this point, it's all oral tradition, and then people started writing, and, and um, the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr uh, tagged it on the end of a sermon. It's in the early 1940s, and from there it just caught on like wildfire. And for purposes of for us in the in the 12-step programs, uh, just to give you a quick history on that, uh, there was the original office in Alcoholics Anonymous in New York, and one of the workers there, a recovered alcoholic named Jack, saw an obituary in the New York Herald Tribune in 1942, to, and um, Bill, who's I never knew. Middle name was Bill Griffith Wilson. I thought that was kind of cool. I never knew his middle name. But anyway, so Bill Wilson, Jack brought this prayer from the obituary that had the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And he brought that to uh, Bill and everybody. The office, and they were they were literally is a quote in the in their book comes of age. They were struck by the power and wisdom that this short prayer had. And Bill is quoted as saying, "Never had we seen so much of AA in so few words." 
And they felt so strongly about it that they printed it on wallet-side cards and put it in all outgoing mail. Because at that point, that's all they were doing. They were just sending out responses in in the mail, uh, trying to help people who were suffering from alcoholism. And and I just love that. And as a matter of fact, that serenity prayer was also printed on wallet-side cards and given to the by the USO to troops going overseas in World War II. I mean, as a non-denominational, as they say, or non-sect, I don't know what that word is, but non-denominational prayer that they found so powerful that they gave to soldiers going overseas. And just for those of you all who are from Maryland, which I thought was a cute fact, or the D.C. area, if you will, when they wanted to print out all of this serenity prayer, this serenity prayer and put it in the mail, obviously they were getting inundated with a lot of mail and a lot of requests. So they connected with Henry, a recovered alcoholic in D.C., who was a professional printer, and they asked him to print out something like 500 copies. And the quote is saying, is Henry saying, incidentally, I'm only a heel when I'm drunk. So naturally, there could be no ch- charge for anything of this nature. And I just love that for those of us uh, Maryland, D.C. area folks that are history. And, and you know, the rest they say is history. You know, this, this has become a huge part of our program. And it's, it's like a one-size-fits-all prayer because it's for, it's for all of us at any phase. I have found it at every single phase of my recovery from day one to today and on into the future. But that's enough about the history. What I wanted to do today was to really just sort of break it down and how it's affected me in my life and how I see it correlating you know, correlating with the steps. And, you know, when we look at the, in my humble opinion, when we look at the first part of the serenity prayer, it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. To me, we couldn't be any clearer of how this correlates to the decision, the admitting, the accepting, and the decision phases of steps one, two, three, which are step one, admitted we are powerless over food and that our lives have become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And then if you take the second phase of the serenity prayer, which is the courage to change, well, this again correlates so strongly with steps four through nine, which take tons of courage and create tons of change. Let me read those steps to you. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That was step four. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Um, again, a huge part of our program, and it correlates directly with the serenity prayer. And then, of course, the last part, and the wisdom to, to know the difference. Again, to me, these remind me of the steps 10 through 12, the maintenance phases of our recovery and our day-to-day living once we have done the footwork and now the day-to-day living of steps 10 through 12, and I will read those. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, which is step 10. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, 
praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And the bottom line of this program to me is to carry the message, what it says here in step 12, and that we can't do this without having acceptance, serenity, courage, and godly or higher power will, wisdom, which is the essence of the prayer. So they are interweaved, interlocked, and they, and they go hand in hand. And when I say God, let me just, instead of saying God, higher power, for me, my higher power is God, so I'm just going to say God. But it can be higher power. It can be whatever it is that your higher power is. I remember my sponsor used to tell me over and over again, look, I don't care if your higher power is Jesus, Buddha, the universal vibes of a tree, the power of the group, those who have recovered and gone before, as long as you ain't it. And, and that, I can, go, I can deal with that. And, of course, being more, not me, being more powerful than me. So I'm going to break it down even further here, and I'm going to start with the word God in the serenity prayer. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to push your foot around. This program is a spiritual program. It's not a religious one. It is a spiritual one. I had to come to a point in my, when I came to this program of surrender, which was that I no longer was running the show here because me, myself, and I was getting me dying of this disease. It is a personality, let me repeat, it is a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, which is done through a spiritual transformation via the 12 steps. And when we talk about spiritual, we're talking about a higher power. We're talking about a power whose whose existence that we acknowledge and recognize that this higher power is truly the only one that can bring us inner peace regardless of the, our chaotic circumstances, our addictions, our disease, and that that presence in our lives is what bring us, brings us serenity that I couldn't find anywhere else. I came to this program in 83, March of 83, dying of this disease, puking 10, 12, 13 times a day. I didn't understand. I bought the myth that the media sold you that thin was well. And I thought all I needed to do was find the magic numbers on the scale. I had no idea what I was up against. But I did know that I was dying and I could not stop eating. You know, knives, ladles, spoons, whatever I could stick down my throat to get the food up. Because I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand this disease concept that I was dealing with an allergy once I put those allergic substances into my body that I couldn't stop eating. That I was dealing with a mind that was so warped. Let me read this from step one in the 12 and 12. It says here, on page page one, on page, excuse me, page 21. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that food in hand, we have warped our minds into such obsession for destructive eating that only an act of providence can remove it from us. And that's where I was at. My mind was completely warped, and I had to be able to let go of what I thought I knew when I came to this program, and I had to surrender. And let me just address the agnostic here. I was firmly agnostic, and when they started talking about God in these rooms, when they started talking about God in my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, I stood up and I walked out of the room. That's how agnostic I was. And thank God, 
you all who showed me true love, someone came out and followed me out of my meeting and said, and they actually what was beautiful about it is that they didn't talk about God or anything like that. What they did is they handed me that pamphlet that had 15 questions on it that said, are you a compulsive overeater? And I had to look at it and admit because I wrote, I, I checked off yes to every single question on there except for maybe one. It was like a splash of cold water on my face that said, this is who I am. This is who I am. God, help me. You know, somebody help me at that point. And I didn't understand God. And it talks about in the, you know, it talks about in the big book, you know, it's just a matter of being willing to believe in something greater than yourself. And for me, for the longest time, it really was the power of the group and those who had recovered and gone before. But ultimately, I came around to some sort of spiritual belief in a higher power. And it talks about this quite, quite well in the chapter to the agnostics. And it says here on page uh, 55, we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as much as feeling we had for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us, and in the last analysis, 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 it is only there that he may be found, and it is so with us. I don't know about you all, but maybe you've heard that slogan that we try to fill the hole in our soul with a knife and a fork when in reality it's a God-shaped hole. And that's what I did. I tried to fill that hole in my soul with a knife and a fork, thinking that it would do for me what I could not do for myself. And I finally had to concede that I could not control my eating. I could not control my eating. Again, if we go to page 62 and how it works in the big book, it says this is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided in the hereafter, in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass through freedom. You know, before I came to the program, I used to pray. I used to say, God, Help me this time. Save my ass, and I promise I won't do it again. But when I finally surrendered, it, my prayer became this. God, please save my ass because I can't promise you that I won't do it again. That, to me, was the true surrender. I couldn't promise that I couldn't do it again, that I wouldn't pick up the food because of this merciless obsession, because of my sick mind that couldn't heal my sick mind, I could stop, but I could never stay stopped. I always wound up back in the food. And some of y'all have heard, it, heard me say it before, five bites into a binge going, how the hell did I get here? Against my best intentions, all my willpower, I'm still putting the food in my mouth. I'm still thinking that picking up that binge food was the best idea I had all day. So I finally had to concede. And let me say something about steps one and two, particularly about the unmanageability. When we admit that we're powerless over food and that our lives become unmanageable, I don't know about you, but a lot of people struggle with that unmanageability part because some of us still have our jobs, you know, we're still working, we have a family, we're doing things. But to me, the unmanageability 
I never thought of it that way. When I thought of the unmanageability, I thought about my depression. I thought about my my compulsive, obsessive mind that was thinking about food 24-7. I had no peace. I had no serenity. I had no wisdom. I had no courage. I had nothing but obsessing about weights, numbers, scales. I lived my life based on the number of a scale. I, my life was obsessed with diets and foods and calorie counting and exercising to work off the weight. It was unmanageability in a huge way for me. It may not have looked it on the outside, but on the inside, I was an empty, hollow shell, and I hated myself. I could not understand why I could not control the food. And for me, that was my unmanageability. Yes, I got to a point where I also was not working and I lost a number of jobs because of my compulsive overeating. But I was crazy in my head and unmanageable in my head way before that as well. So when we look at this idea of God, when I think of God in the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity prayer, I'm thinking, God, you're running the show. I'm admitting my powerlessness. God, I am asking you for help. So let's look at the words grant, serenity, and accept. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Well, when I looked up the word word grant, and one of the best definitions I found was to consent to the fulfillment of a request, that I am asking God, this higher power, to fill me with serenity, to be granted fulfillment of serenity. I'm asking for the gift of serenity to actually be filled with serenity. And I love this, this mental picture. And, and I've used it, used it before in meditation, you know, with my uh, step 11 prayer, prayer and meditation. Imagine ingesting serenity instead of food and being satisfied with what our daily situation, whatever our daily, our, our daily situations may be, to be filled with serenity instead of being filled with food. And, and notice how serenity comes before the word acceptance. And I know I focused a lot on the serenity that came when I finally stopped fighting. And, um, and that, was, you know, that was incredibly important. I mean, but when I looked at serenity and the definition and how I thought of it, it said serenity means a presence of mind in the here and now, viewing the reality of whatever conditions and circumstances that may be occurring. And to me, that made so much sense because serenity is the presence of mind to see clearly for the first time, call it divine intervention, through my warped mind, my warped compulsive overeating mind, that I needed help. I needed my mind to be quiet. I needed to pray for God to, to come through and help me quiet so that I could get that serenity, so that I could finally surrender and accept who I was. That, to me, was the serenity I needed. Of course, was the serenity that comes after when you, when you surrender. But I needed peace. I needed supernatural grace, if you will, of serenity so that I could see clearly. You know, we hear again in the rooms over and over and over again that a sick mind can't heal the sick mind. And because of this mental obsession, this is why we need a spiritual transformation because we need a higher power to help us see clearly. And we need that moment of clarity. I needed that moment of clarity. I, if you look at my history when I qualified, I came in March of 83. 
I didn't come recovered until December of 87. I didn't remember. My worst years of compulsive overeating were in Overeaters Anonymous, folks. This is where the mental obsession truly hit home for me. Because even after all that I understood about the disease, even after all that I knew and all the meetings I attended and everything that I tried to do, and I still had not surrendered to the true powerlessness of this disease in the idea of the mental obsession. I still was trying to think my way through. I still was balking at certain aspects of the program. I still thought I may have a better solution. I mean, in all... Amy, press start eight. Okay, I got lost there for a second. The, the program started talking to me. Can you hear me? I hear you now. Star eight when that occurs. Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so I was still balking at things. And if we go to how it works in the beginning of the chapter, you know, it says here, if you want what we have and you are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain ready to take certain steps. At some of this, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with food, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And then it goes to list the 12 steps. It's saying we had to let go absolutely. Half measures availed us nothing. There is one who has all power. We beg of you to be fearless and thorough. Well, before I could even get there, I needed to be so beaten and so pummeled by this disease that I, they call it the gift of desperation. If you want what we have and are willing to go to any length, I finally, after four years of trying to do it my way, half measures, old ideas, was finally willing to let go and say, I don't care what you all tell me to do. I am so desperate. I will do whatever it is because I see that you all recovered and I see you have peace. That's one thing that struck me too, was when I hear and see recovery, those that are recovered who have gone before. And in my meeting, there's a line of people standing in front of me with peace and serenity in their eyes, saying that they have recovered, and I saw that, and I wanted that with all my might, all my heart, all my mind. And that's what I was willing to do. So anyway, so that was my definition of that type of serenity, to see clearly through the mental obsession, to stop fighting reality, you know, with illusions and delusions of who I wanted to be and what, how I wanted life to go. You know, when they talk about the disease, they say the three Ds, denial, delusion, and defiance. And I understood that because I denied who I was. I was in delusion of who I thought I could make myself be. And uh, denial, delusion, and defiant. I was flat out defiant because I still wanted to do things my way. And then they say the next three Ds are desperate, dying, and doomed. And that was what I was, dying, doomed, and finally desperate enough to do what it is that this program asked me to do without balking. And I shut down and resigned from the debating society and accepted 
who and what I was and that I couldn't change that. By the way, acceptance does not mean that I had to like it, okay? I just have to accept it, that it simply is. And what am I going to do about it? You know, it says in the big book, we are like people that have lost our legs. We never grow new ones. And, and I, I just so, so believe that to be the truth. Because what that does is that says, I am absolutely not going to go back there anymore. You know, I'm not going to think or debate or whatever. I am what I am. If that's what I am, if that is my disease and that is my problem, then I need a solution. So give me the solution. And I'm going to put my energies that way. You know, reality is changing our point of view and our perspective. And that reality is something that I had to no longer debate about. When you think about a game where there's a, a competition, one team against the other, and they call it, uh, you know, a shutout where the other team doesn't score any points at all, that's the way I like to think about it. I was a shutout. Me, myself, and I could not fight against this disease. So let me just go back to one more page, to 53 here, when it comes to describing this. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or he is nothing. God either is or he isn't, and what was our choice to be? I had to make that choice that I was going to believe in a higher power. I was going to believe in the program. I was going to believe in the solution that was provided here and that I was going to work like my life depended on it. And that's what I decided to do in December of 87. It was a clear decision. That's why they call the first three steps decision steps, because we have to admit our powerlessness, accept that we're compulsive overreaders, believe in a higher power, and be willing to turn our will and our lives over. That's the first three steps, to be willing to do that. So let me review. Again, the serenity prayer. I would say, God, and in my mind, I would be thinking, God, you're running the show. I'm not anymore. God, grant me, fill me with serenity, God. Fill me with a presence of mind to see clearly through my sick mind and accept the things I cannot change. What? That I am a compulsive overeater and that that will never, ever change. I can be cured but never recovered. That physical alley and that obsession of my mind is something that I will work on daily to be recovered. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Now let's talk about courage. Courage to change the things I can. And to me, this is where the steps of four through nine come in, where we have to work. We have to work on this program. And I'm sort of a slogan junkie. You've heard me say it all the time. A lot of slogans, a lot. But this whole idea is the same person will drink again. If I didn't change, then I was going to be back in the food. I mean, let's think about it. Most of us don't come into this program, you know, on a high. (laughs) And I'll give you an example of what I was like when I came to the program. If we go to page 52, and it's the third pair or second full paragraph down, it says here, and where it says we, I changed it to I because it was very, very helpful to me. I said, I was having trouble with personal relationships. I couldn't control my emotional natures, my emotional nature. I was prey to misery and depression. 
I couldn't make a living. I had a feeling of uselessness. I was full of fear. I was unhappy. And I couldn't seem to be of real help to, any people, to anyone. And that's where I was. Putting down the food and admitting I was powerless and willing to ask for help was only the beginning. You know, abstinence is only the beginning. Step zero, very, very important. Don't get me wrong. The food has got to be down. I had to have boundaries around my food plan. I had to work with a sponsor. I had to know what was abstinent and what was not. I had to know what would trigger me and what would not. And for me, it was volume, sugar, and white flour. That had to be out of my that had to be out of my diet. I needed to know exactly what was abstinent and what was not. What was as close to the plug in the jug for the alcoholic. And that's something that I had to get started and I had to have that step zero and that had to be happening. But then there was that work. That was the work that had to change. Newsflash, folks. Just because we stop eating compulsively doesn't mean that we stop being compulsive overeaters. My compulsive overeating didn't have to be active in my life for me to be affected by it. I was still crazy as a loon. That mental obsession doesn't go away. That's why a diet and all those things that I tried before was like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound for a compulsive overeater. It was only affecting the symptom. It was not dealing with the inside me stuff. I still had all those behaviors, mannerisms, character flaws that developed over the years that were with me and why I couldn't stay stopped. Again, the same person will eat again. There always came a point for me where I became restless, irritable, and discontent. And for some reason, my mind would then convince me that picking up that bag of chocolate chip cookies was the best idea I had all day. And then I even went further to rationalize the craziness of puking my guts out afterwards. This was not same behavior, folks. I needed to be restored to, stan- restored to sanity, not just learn how to stay on a diet. I didn't come to the table, if you'll excuse the pun, on a high note. And I needed to change. And this was going to take a real act of courage and a real reality check check quick. And with fear and trembling, fear and trembling, I asked God, took action, and asked for help. I did the inventory steps and the admitting steps of four and five. Was I afraid? Yes, but I was more afraid of relapse. And that gave me courage to take action, even if I wasn't sure of the outcome. You know, pray to God, row to shore. And again, looking at some definitions, one of the ones I found that I I really liked, it said, the ability to make courage, the ability to make responsible decisions and take action to do the things we already know need to be done in the face of unknown outcomes and consequences. And this is why I needed faith and I needed to surrender because I knew action needed to be taken. I was unsure of what it was going to happen because it was an unknown to me. But I was willing to believe in those who had recovered and those who had gone before. So when I started to balk, like it talks about it, I said, no, no, my decision is I am a compulsive overreader. This is the solution for me. I'm going to do what it is, and I'm going to ask God to help me through. And a lot of times it was asking you all, you know, they say God was skin on, was asking you all in the program who had gone before. I'm really scared. Show me how. Show me how. And that's what I did. And just a note on shortcomings. Let me read those two steps again. We were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. And step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. This was 
this takes a lot of courage to work through these two as well. And I think it's an, it's an ongoing process. I don't think these shortcomings are removed, you know, bang, you know, just like that. And, you know, someone helped me a lot in looking at, in looking at these shortcomings and defects, if you will. Um, how to, let me try to explain this right. When I was a kid in my family, it seemed to me, and I made this decision, and again, I'm not blaming anyone here. This is, this is I, I made these decisions, okay? No one tied me down and put food down my throat. But at some point, in a kid, in my crazy household, and everyone has some sort of dysfunction, I'm not minimizing the extremes or the lows of dysfunctions in our, in our families that we grow up in. And mine was pretty crazy. But I made a decision that it was better to tell people what they wanted to hear than to tell the truth. So I became a liar. It seemed safer for me to be a liar. I'm not saying that was right. I did whatever I could to survive in my childhood. And food was a big part of that too because it was a comfort to me. It was a comfort to me. But I will tell you that I was a liar because I wanted to just not be seen or heard and it was easier to tell you what I thought you wanted to hear so then I could just move along my way. I also learned that if you... Don't grab what it is that is there in front of you right away. You'll never get another opportunity for it again. So I became a thief. I stole. I took things. If you don't grab it now, you'll never get it. So whatever cost, you know, the means, the end justifies the means. I became a liar and I became a thief. I also came to believe that if I could just control my world around me, that I would somehow be safe that I would somehow be safe, that I would be able to control my world, that I could dictate to the world. My family's motto takes is a little willpower. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So I figured if I could control you, me, and everyone around me, I would be safe. So I became a selfish, self-centered, narcissistic control freak. I was a liar, I was a thief, and I was a control freak. Those behaviors continue to carry on throughout my life, and I turned to food constantly when those behaviors didn't work for me, particularly in trying to control. It talks about in the big book, selfishness, self-centeredness. We need self-will run riot. We must get rid of these things or they kill us. That self-will run riot, that selfishness, that narcissism was killing me. And when things didn't go my way, because, of course, in reality, we can't control everything, I turned to the food. You know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years of destructive eating and compulsive overeating, you know, I stepped over the line and I became a compulsive overeater. I don't know if I was born a compulsive overeater or if I abused food to the point of becoming allergic and a compulsive overeater. To me, it doesn't matter. You know, it's a chicken or the egg. I am what I am. I am a compulsive overeater. And so I come to Overeaters Anonymous dying of this disease and I put down the food by the grace of God and ask people, show me how. Well, I still have these shortcomings. I still have these defenses that are really masquerading. They're character defects masquerading as defenses. These are defenses that I had that are masquerading as character defects. Those character defects, those shortcomings were what I needed to ask God to have removed. You know, and I learned about those in the inventory steps, in steps four and five, of what exactly those were and realized that those defenses that I had were defects and shortcomings, and they needed to be removed. And I had to ask God to help me do that because, newsflash, I was just as powerless over letting go of some of those shortcomings 
as I was over the food before I came to the program. I was just as powerless. And sometimes God does not remove those shortcomings right away. I mean, I was very blessed. Once we start working this program, I started to have a conscience, and I started to realize that lying and stealing and cheating was not the way to go. And those, by the grace of God, those things were removed. But there are many other things that I still work on on a daily basis that I need and ask God every day to help me remove. Remove me from self-centeredness. Remove me from selfishness. Remove me from the bondage of my self-will. And that's something that I work on on a regular basis. So again, let's, let's, let's review. God, you're running the show. Grant me, fill me with serenity, the presence of mind to see clearly through my sick mind, to accept the things I cannot change, that I am a compulsive overreader, and that will never, ever change, and the courage to change the things I can, to take action that I need to take, regardless of unknown results, knowing that if I don't change, that I will relapse. Now let's talk about wisdom to know the difference. Um, looking through again on, on definitions, wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom is a, is a behavior or a trait that through experience of life, we recognize and remember the things which do not coincide with reality and which do and do not work. And isn't this what steps 10 through 12 are about, living in the now one day at a time? We've done our work. We've gone through the inventory. We work on our steps 6 and 7. We've made our amends in 8 and 9. And now how do we deal with life on life's terms? How do we stay serene in the circumstances of life that are going to happen? Just because I'm abstinent and recovered doesn't mean that life doesn't happen. So what do I need? Do I need serenity in this situation or do I need courage? And to know the difference between the two can often be difficult because I'm filled with self-will and selfishness and self-centeredness. You know, self-deception is often gets in the middle of those two and muddies the water. For example, if I'm resigned to a situation that I can really change, that needs changing, I'm not asking for serenity. I'm, I'm dealing with complacency. You know, and if there's a fact of reality that I can't change, that I'm trying to change, well, then I'm being a fool. So what's the difference? How do I know the difference between the two? Because if I'm fighting something, I will never have serenity. And if I'm not changing, I'm supposed, I'm not changing something I'm supposed to change, well, I'm not going to have serenity there either. And the big book is full, full of instructions on how to deal with life on life's terms and make these decisions. Serenity, courage. Is it something I can change? Is it something I can't change? Is it something I need to surrender? Is it something I need to take action on? And it, it talks about on the maintenance here and into action in the chapter into action in, in the big book on pages uh, 86 and 87. It says here, in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or action. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised at how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. And further on here, we ask for an intuitive thought or action. Oops, sorry. Wrong book here. Oh, well, I lost that page. 
Okay, well, the instructions are, let me put it this way. When I find myself going through the day reacting to things instead of acting out in conscious decision-making, like pausing and trying to think, God, what would you have me do in this situation, then I know that I'm getting myself in trouble. And if we go to step 10 in the 12 and 12 and we go to page 91, it talks about self-restraint. And I was looking through this the other day, and I realized that self-restraint in that page is listed five times. Self-restraint, self-restraint, restraint of tendon tongue, self-restraint. The idea of the thought, you know, we hear Leia say all the time, action is, you know, every action is born in thought. To be able to pause in between <laughs> that thought and that action, you know, is the essence of knowing the difference between do I need to change or do I need to let go and surrender, if that makes sense. Being able to pause and not react, to ask God for that moment of grace to think about what it is we're going to say or what it is we're going to do. And um, that's not always uh, an easy task, but we work on it. I work on it. And when it comes to this point of serenity versus care. Uh, courage. I, I heard once someone call it the me you principle, and, and you know, in our daily lives, when, when when something is bothering us, I think me or you. And the reality is, if it's something about me, it's something I can change. If it's something about you, very rarely is it anything that I can change. So quite often, I'm asking for the serenity to accept the things I cannot change about you, and I'm asking for the courage to change when it comes to me. Another great slogan in the program, bless them, change me. Bless them, change me. I can't tell you how many times I repeat that on many many days, on trying days in dealing with difficult situations, is the bless them, is the bless them, change me. Um, So let me just wrap up with, with, again, my definition here of the serenity prayer. God you're running the show, grant me, fill me with the serenity, the presence of mind to see clearly through my sick mind, to accept the things I can change, that I am a compulsive overeater, and that that will never, ever change. Give me the courage to change the things I can, to take action where I need to, regardless of unknown results, knowing that if I don't change, I will relapse. And the wisdom to know the difference, to not deceive myself, to use restraint and pray and trust that you will give me clarity. And that is something, that is a prayer that I use that has had so much, so much power in my life through this program. And I guess I want to end here with hope. I want to end with hope. As much as this disease doesn't change, I can honestly tell you, and I offer this to the newcomer, that recovery doesn't change either. This book, this first 164 pages that give these instructions, that talk about these 12 steps, this is, these, this, these words have not changed since 1935, 37, whenever the book was written. These are the same instructions that have worked for thousands upon thousands of people to become recovered. There, there is no secret code. There is no 
there is no special way to go about this. I am just another compulsive overreader bozo on the bus. There is nothing special about me that's given me 25 years. I've just done the instructions in the manual with my whole heart, without reservation, as fearlessly as I could. And I followed those who have gone before, and they showed me the way. At first, I wasn't willing to believe, and then I was willing to believe, and now I have a concept of a higher power and a God. But all it started was, all it started was with a little willingness, with a prayer that said, God, I can't promise you that I won't pick that food up again. I'm ready for help, and I'm going to be willing to go to any length. I accept who I am. I've been given that moment of clarity. You may be at that moment of clarity right now. You may be at that divine intervention that says, this is who I am, and that's not going to change. God help me. And then the acceptance of it, and then the willingness and the courage to move through. And trust me, this program absolutely will work if you work it. If we go to the beginning, and there is a solution, the beginning of the big book, on page 17, it says, I mean, the chapter is called There is a Solution. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism and for us compulsive overeating. It works. It really, really works. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Amy, for your insightful and revealing study this morning of the Serenity Prayer and the Steps. We thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today. And let's start off with some contact information, if we could, Amy. Can you offer a phone number? And then we'll open it up to questions this morning. Sure, no problem. It's 301-300-9325, and that's Eastern Standard Time. And I'm best during the day versus uh, before 3 o'clock. Thank you. Again, that's 301-300-9325, and Amy is Eastern Time. And before 3 p.m., please. Now we open the floor for any questions you might have for our speaker this morning. Star 1 to unmute if you'd like to ask a question. Well, good morning, Leah. I would love to ask a question. Go right ahead. And you are? Hi, this is Ronnie from Pennsylvania. I'm Ronnie, go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for your uh, qualifying. It was just great. Um, question. I, I'm always blown away by people who have, you know, decades of abstinence, and I still, you know, I'm compulsive, and I still struggle with abstinence. And um, has, I mean, is your abstinence back to back, meal to meal, day to day? I struggle with progress, not perfection. And some days I pray for God to help me release my will again. And, um, you know, I struggle with surrender. Um, I don't stay surrendered. My will comes back up, and sometimes it comes up in ways that I don't even know it did until sort of after the fact. And so um, I don't know if there's anything that you'd be willing to speak to. Thank you. Well, sure. Um, 
yes, my recovery is uh, is abstinent. Um, it is back to back by the grace of God in this program. Like I said, I'm I'm just another bozo on the bus. But for me, it was a gift of desperation. I can speak to my own experience. I mean, those four years that I had in in OA prior to becoming surrendered, truly surrendered were a big struggle for me because I understand where you're coming from. This idea of taking our will back is one of the toughest things I believe that we deal with, this this denial and this delusion and the defiance. I mean, the self-will issue doesn't, doesn't develop in us overnight. It's something that we've established long before we come to OA, and that self-will constantly is, is, you know, is an issue, and we have to surrender that self-will. But that defiance, it's a flat-out defiance. Because I can tell you honestly that I wanted to stop eating compulsively. I knew I was a compulsive overeater, but I still defied. I still defied. And for me, it was a spiritual disconnect. For me, I had yet to really wrap my brain around the fact that I was not only powerless, that I needed a power greater than myself, outside of myself, to recover from this program and that if I wasn't, I was going to die. I mean, I had to get to that kind of desperation. And, you know, I guess call it a blessing or a curse, but I was the kind of binger or eater that was just like on or off. I mean, that was it. I didn't graze. I was face first in the cellophane bags and the bakery boxes. So there was nothing in between for me. And when I came into OA in those first four years, I kept struggling with what I thought would work. And I, and I keep saying I, 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 because that's what happens with myself. Well, when I take it back, I'm defying, I'm defying God. I'm defying my higher power. I'm defying what I think is powerlessness. I'm I'm deciding what powerlessness was. That's what I was deciding. I was deciding what powerlessness was. And I had to come to that, you know, that rock bottom in the gutter type of surrender to God that said, please don't make me be doing, please may I not be doing this 10 and 20 years down the road, slipping in and out of the food, because I can't, I haven't surrendered truly and then belief that a higher power could restore me to sanity, that this program could restore me to sanity. I, I don't know if it helps you or not, but for me, it was a spiritual disconnect that kept me picking, kept me picking back up my self-will. And of course, my self-will got me to the mental obsession being triggered to thinking that then the best idea to pick up my binge foods. Right, right. That's that's really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks, Ronnie, for the question. Who's next? It's Esther. Esther, your turn. Good morning. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, this is Esther, compulsive overeater in Canada. I wanted Hello. to just ask you if you could clarify, uh, how do you know when you're being complacent versus accepting um, sometimes I think I'm good at accepting situation, and there's a thought at the back of my mind that maybe I should be taking action. So how do you determine? You well, know, again, this, uh, sure, I'll try to answer that as best I can. Uh, the the me you the me you principle usually always to be it usually fixes that in most most cases. Uh, this idea of if, if it's something I can take action on versus being complacent, and if it has to do, if your situation has to do with someone else, then in most cases than not, it's a let go situation because I can't change them. If it's something that can be changed in me and I haven't changed it, because if it has to do with me, in more cases than not, it's something that I can change. And in that case, if I'm not taking responsibility for that, then I am being complacent. 
Um, does that help you? If it has to do with something I can change and I'm not taking responsibility for it, then I'm being complacent. Like I trick myself into accepting that it's not my responsibility to take care of this situation. And usually underneath that complacency is a fear of dealing with it. Especially if I'm if that underneath complacency, do you get what I'm saying? Underneath complacency is often a fear that I don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times that's where it can come from. And more, and more times than not, you know, I write about it. I use other tools of the program to get clarification. I'll write about it. I'll talk to my sponsor about it, and I'll do a, I'll do a column. I'll say change, question mark, not change, me, you. I'll do a column, me, you, those kinds of things. It really helps to get out of my head and onto paper or at least talking about it with someone else. But usually the me, you principle, if it's something about me, more, more, more than likely it's something I can take responsibility for and ask help to change. That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Esther, for the question. Anyone else with a question for Amy this morning? Star one to unmute. If it's on your mind, it's probably on about 20 other people's minds. <laughs> so we invite you to ask questions. Fred? Yes, good morning. Fran from New York. I'm, I know that I came on late and I just wanted to find out, I know this is superficial in the scheme of the program, but how much um, weight Amy gave away just on a physical level. Oh, sure. Um, I stopped weighing at around 170. I think I put on another 20. I don't know. I was probably pushing 180 or 90. So that's about 60, 60 plus. And then on my anorexic phase, uh, you know, I'm 5'8", a little shy of 5'8", and my lowest weight was like 102, something like that. You know, the same thing, wearing a, a, a jacket in the middle of summer with the heat on in the car type of thing. And and then I was bulimic, so... So, so Wickedly now you, okay. Wickedly, so yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So you had gone from emaci- like overweight to emaciated back to to normal kind of thing. That's correct. I have maintained a normal body weight since well, 25 years, 25 years, 24, something like that. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Fran. We're not afraid of the nitty-gritty here on the line. Anyone else? <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, when you come in, you know, you it's all it's it's a lot about the vanity, so we understand the Good morning. This is Fran um in North Carolina compulsive overeater. Can you Fran, go uh, ahead. Can you talk a little bit more about self-will and surrender? Um I'm someone who grew up with that sort of like, you know, God helps those who help themselves sort of mentality. And um, surrender is really difficult for me. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Thank you. Uh, Surrender in relation to to just life in general or just to... Life in general in just any way you want to talk about it. Okay, well... Life in general. Sure, sure. Well, again, I go back to the the to step one, 
in the 12 and 12. I mean, it's just it's such an incredibly powerful chapter. And it talks about John Barleycorn, or I should say Sarah Lee, as we joke around in the program, is our best advocate. The, the reality of the surrender for me, self-will, was that every time I picked up my self-will, I failed. I mean, my sponsor used to say to me, if your way is working so well, what are you doing here? And, you know, I had to keep coming up against this idea that I could not, you know, my will, my way, if you will, because self-will really is my way, doing things my way, then, you know what I mean, and that was failing constantly. Well, I had to find another, I had to find another way. I had to find another way. And, and every time I picked up my self-will, I failed. My sponsor used to say to me in the, in the early recovery days, he said, you know, just, just let me tell you this, give you a disclaimer right up front here. Everything you think, especially right now, everything you think strongly about is wrong <laughs> because your mind is warped and left to your own devices. You, you pick up your own way, your own self-will, and that's, what's going to, that's what you're going to want to do, which is why I could never stay stopped in the first place. I stopped a bazillion times eating, but I could never stay stopped. I'd pick up myself, well, I'd get some sort of crazy idea. I'd get restless, irritable, and discontent. Something would not be going my way. And I'd want to go right in there and kill it. So what did I do? I picked up myself, well, I started thinking about what I thought would be the best idea. And eventually that would lead me down the road to to picking up the food. So, you know, my my constantly binging and not staying absent is what actually helped me surrender. It was the disease. The disease the disease beat me. The disease put me to my knees because I couldn't, I couldn't say to my sponsor that I got this, you know. I couldn't say that I'm winning. I had to say that my way was not working, you know, the disease constantly. And what I love about this program is it, it's so sure about the solution. It is so sure about the powerlessness that if you've truly stepped over the line to be a compulsive overeater or an alcoholic, it even says, it's like it dares you. I know it's not daring you, but I always felt like it was a dare. It says, go out there and try some controlled drinking, in our case, controlled eating. You know, go to a buffet and have one thing and try to stop. You know, try it repeat, repeatedly. And it may be well, it may be, it may be well a case of, uh, say, it may be well to have a case of the jitters to find out the true knowledge of your condition. And for me, those four and a half years was the true knowledge of my condition is that surrender. I had yet to be in enough pain from this disease to finally surrender. You know, you hear Leah talk about it. How free do you want to be? Well, how much pain do you want to be? The hole stops when you stop digging. You know, I fought and fought and fought and fought and fought and fought. I kept sticking my hand on the hot flame, and I got burned every single time. The definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. So every time I thought of self-will, I thought of a skull and crossbones. I'm not kidding. I had like a visual picture of skull and crossbones because I knew my self-will was killing me and that my answer was surrender. And that's what I talk about in the serenity, in the surrender, uh, you know, in the serenity prayer and what it's talking about is in surrendering and shutting the door on any debate about who I was. And what my solution was. I had to let go absolutely. That's where I had to surrender. I just absolutely had to do it 100%. Because if I let the door open, even a crack, you know, my family's motto would come back to me. All it takes is a little willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to. I had to shut the door on all of that. All of it. I hope that helps. Thank you, Fran, for the question. 
Who's hey, next? Sherry, do I have time to ask a question? Yes, Sherry, go right ahead. Thank you so much Thank for you. that. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. And um, um, Amy, I have a question, and I don't. It might be a dumb one. I don't know, but <laughs> do uh, you no weigh? Your, okay. <laughs> do you weigh and measure your food? I absolutely do. Yep, I do. Okay. And let me uh, let me let me tell you why. Okay. For me, for me, I absolutely have to have those boundaries. I absolutely need to know. It's not structure. It's not strict. Everyone, of course, you always get that comment. It's so strict. It's so rigid. But for me, it is absolute freedom because in my mind, I know very clearly what is abstinent and what is not. So I don't have to debate. I don't have to decide. I don't have to calorie count. I don't have to do anything. I have a food plan. It's given to me by a professional. I know that it won't make me gain weight. I know that it won't make me lose weight, which also triggers the other aspect of my disease, the anorexic bulimic size. I know exactly what I'm supposed to have. It is, for me, absolute freedom. I don't have to worry anymore. And so for me, it is absolute freedom because I know my abstinence is as black and white as the plug in the jug. And that I need that boundary. I need that hard and fast line. I'm not saying that, that weighing and measuring is for everybody, but I do feel very, very strongly that we've lost the luxury. If we truly are compulsive overeaters and we lost our legs and never grew new ones, grow new ones, that there has to be some sort of boundaries around our food plan. And notice I say food plan, not diet, because we're not about diets. We're about a food plan that's healthy and nutritionist for us that help us lose weight, and, lose weight in a slow and healthy manner or help us maintain our weight or if we need to put weight on to get to the maintenance weight, whatever it is. It's freedom. You're welcome. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Was there another question behind that? Uh, no, I just wanted to make a comment that um, I haven't done that yet, and I'm thinking that that's part of my uh, my defiance, and since you've been talking about that, and I need to really look at that. So I appreciate mm. that. Yeah, absolutely. It does stop the defiance because it just is what it is. And to have some sort of boundaries, some sort of boundaries, is extremely important. It's step zero, in my humble opinion. Thank you, Sherry, for the question. Oh, continue. What did you say last, Amy? I'm sorry, what? What was the last comment? Um, The short one, I can't. I didn't hear it. Oh, it's oh, I just said it's it's step zero in my humble opinion. You have to have some okay. sort of boundaries, okay. some sort of Thank definition you. of abstinence. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Sherry. Who's next? This is Alice. This is Anne Marie. Alice, and then Anne Marie. Thank you. Hi, this is Alice. Uh, food addict and bulimic from Florida, and thank you, Amy, for um, sharing. Um, I had a question um, earlier in your um, in your sharing. Um, you had mentioned that um, your higher power in the beginning was the power of the group, um, maybe 12 steps. Um, that's that's where I am. That's, that's a big step for me to have taken this leap of faith to trust in the steps. It was, uh, I feel like it's like huge progress for me. And awesome. spiritual, and I don't, I don't really know if it's meant to go beyond that for me. But then I, um, I hear people say it changes. Then they had to 
um, you know, had to define it more personally for themselves. And and um, I just um, I want to I want to know why you felt um, that it needed to change because I and um, I I want to be okay with where it is, but I was abstinent for 13 months and. At the end, someone said, well, that's okay for the start, but, you know, for your higher power to be the groups and 12-step program and the people who have gone before me, um, but it's not enough now. And I just want to know what your feeling is on that and what made you think that you need to shift or did it just shift on its own? Anything you could share on that? Thanks. Sure. Well, you know, I absolutely am, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely think it's awesome about the willingness uh, being willing to be willing because I, you're absolutely correct. I was exactly where you were, where I was only willing to believe in the power of the group. I was, I was not, um, you know, like I said, firmly agnostic. God was the universal Santa Claus. He didn't give me what I wanted, so to hell with you. And um, and when I came desperate, doomed, and dying of this disease, they started talking about God. It was a huge issue for me and a huge struggle for me. And finally. Uh, someone said to me, you just need to be willing, to be willing to know that it's not you. Like I said, universal vibes, Jesus, Buddha, whatever, as long as you ain't it, and it's more powerful than you. And I absolutely understood that I needed something more powerful for me. So, yes, that was the beginning. And then I can honestly tell you that as I moved through the steps, I didn't feel that I needed to change my conception of God. It just happened. It just actually evolved that that willingness opened the door. That's what it talks about in the big book. All we need is a little willingness, and it opens the door wide. You know, we don't need to leave it at a crack. But if that's where you stay and it works for you, okay. But the reality, there are people who are, who are still who are in the program that, you know, that, that, that have very different, we all have very different concepts, many of us. It all, it's an individual thing as we understand, as we decide. I remember my sponsor saying to me, you know, fire that old God and hire a new one. And that to me was such a novel concept. Like, what? What do you mean? You mean I can fire that, that God of my childhood and develop one of my own? And she said, yes. You know, what is your concept of what a higher power would be like? And I'm like, it would be like my teddy bear. I could hug it. It loves me. It would be like my dog that shows me unconditional love. It could be like drinking a glass of water when you're really thirsty and it goes down your throat and explodes in your, in your stomach. I mean, it was all sorts of different things. It was all over the map, to be honest with you. It just evolved over time. It just, it's a part of the spiritual transformation. You know, the only thing consistent in life is change. And the big slogan in the program is you can only coast downhill. So as long as you're willing to just let the door be open a crack and be willing to do the steps necessary, i.e. the 12 steps, it just happens naturally. Now, that may not mean that you will then find yourself, you know, having a, what I guess you would call it a conventional view of God, but you certainly can have any kind of higher power. But my guess is your, your thoughts about higher power will eventually evolve and change. And, and we'll, you know, I found that as I changed, so did my views of a higher power. I became, to, I became to love and trust my higher power more and more. This weird concept of just uh, all these different examples that I gave you, they, they started to change, and it became something. But I didn't do it because people told me I needed to do it. It just happened naturally because it's just a matter of working the steps. That's all they're saying. Be willing to know that you aren't the higher power. Start working the steps. 
put the food down, start working the steps, and that will evolve as you continue to, to come to the land recovered. Does that make sense? Yep, that just that makes me feel better. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Alice, for the question. Anne Marie, your turn. Um, good morning, it's Anne Marie. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you, uh, Leah, for your service and also Amy so much. Um What I'm not sure if I should ask what are your thoughts or how um I guess maybe more the question is where do you see a person fail in the steps who has become recovered and and um, gone back into the food um and then has gotten periods of be, you know feeling. Um, the, the feeling recovered. Uh, the obsession has been removed. The 10th step promises have come true. Um, she's been working 10, 11, and 12. Um, and yet the thought comes back occasionally, maybe I should get something to eat. Um, what are your thoughts about that? And I wonder also, in, in your 25 years, have you ever... Has it ever gotten to be where you've gotten so stressed that you thought, I, I want, I need something to munch on? Um, I'm just wondering if, and then, and then you were able to resolve it through doing what you talked about this morning, um, and living in the steps and doing the uh, precise directions as outlined in the big book. Um, you've been able to get rid of those thoughts. But have those thoughts ever, this is a complicated question, I think, but um, have those thoughts ever, have they ever come up through your 25 years? Um, thank okay. you. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I think I heard it best said, I think it was uh, the New York speaker a couple of weeks ago, that, you know, we're not cured of compulsive overeating. We're recovered. We're not cured. You know, our recovery is contingent on the maintenance of a spiritual condition. That's actually written in the big book. But what he said is that I'm not responsible because I'm never cured. I don't have to feel responsible for the thought that says, hey, wouldn't a chocolate chip cookie feel good right now? For me, sometimes it's like, you know, 25 years ago, they didn't have that type of candy bar. And I think to myself, hmm, I wonder what that candy bar would taste like. But what I am responsible for is what happens after that thought. You know, what is it that I do with that thought? What is my action? If every action is born, born in, if every action is born in thought, what is my action that I'm going to do with that thought? And my thought is, is, is that I don't, I don't act out on it. And that's by the grace of God in this program. And because I am spiritually fit, you know, I mean, I'm not a spiritual guru. Don't get me wrong, but I work this program, so I'm not resting on my laurels. That to me is the biggest problem for us, that, for people that relapse after you know quite some time, is that we rest on our spiritual laurels. You know, we rest thinking that we got it. it's all done. We work the steps. You know, I kind of work a ten step, and you know, then when life happens, when things get really, really stressful, what is it that we do? Do we rely on our higher power and the concepts, the spiritual concepts of this program? Or do we rely, do we go back to old habits and behaviors? And, of course, those old habits and behaviors lean to learn, uh, old habits and behaviors then take us to relapse warning signs, and then we relapse. You know, we all know, or I will just say that, you know, when we pick up the food, it's not the beginning of the relapse. 
it started way before that with relapse warning signs that we never picked up because we weren't spiritually fit or we weren't paying attention, you know, that kind of thing. So I have that thought, but I don't act. You know, the food doesn't call to me per se anymore. I, by the grace of God, because the village physical allergy is no longer a problem because I don't, I don't ingest the food anymore. So I'm no longer triggering the physical allergy that creates the compulsion beyond my control because of that phenomenon of craving. That's out of the picture. But the obsession is what we are is what we deal with, and not luckily, or not luckily, by the grace of God, that 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 obsessive thinking is not a part of my repertory anymore because I've worked the steps. But we must always remember what we need to do spiritually to maintain ourselves. To me, it always comes down to a spiritual disconnect. If I have a thought and I'm acting out in it in a wrong way, then there is a spiritual disconnect. What is it that I need to do spiritually to reconnect? I'll give you an example. A uh, year before last, uh, I had a back injury, and it was in one of the most stressful times in my life because I was in more pain than I could have ever imagined. And trust me, I'm a tomboy. I train horses. I've broken bones. I've, I've done so much damage. I've had surgeries. I've had children. I've had labor, you know, all of that. This back, this back issue was pain that I had never dreamed, I could never even have imagined, wouldn't give it to my worst enemy. I thought I would never walk again. I had a real issue with my spiritual my spiritual fitness at that point. I had very strong questions with God, with acceptance, and all of those things. And for a while, I shook my hand at God, and I said, you know, why, why, why? And, and then I realized it was better to just ask God to get me through than to shake my, to shake my fist. That to me was a spiritual, a spiritual issue. And I couldn't rest on my laurels anymore just being angry. I had to work my program. I had to surrender. I had to work on acceptance. I had to work some step works on step six and seven. There was a lot of work that I needed to do in order to find a sort of a peace and serenity for where I was. So I didn't act out on the food. I didn't act out on those thoughts, right? It's better to binge and die than it is to feel this way. Because trust me, some of that stuff crossed my mind. It would be better to just die than it would be to feel this pain. And... um you know, and that's and a spiritual disconnect. So I had to come to some sort of grips and work my program because I know where I would have ended up if I didn't. So I hope that helps. Thank, Thank you. you, Anne. Thanks, Anne-Marie. We have a few minutes left here for another question or two before we wrap up. Susan, your turn. Maria. And then Maria. Thank you so much. They talk about bringing the big book to life. You really brought the serenity prayer to life for me. Um, Thank you. Thank you both. Um, So outside of the realm of the food, gratefully, at least for today and some yesterdays, I've surrendered the food a day at a time. But there's a bigger, you know, area of surrender. And you kind of um, answered a part of my question in your last response because you told you you taught us how you could bring it to an issue like that horrendous back pain. I uh, share with you and many of us in this program um, a strong desire to control, and that's a defense, a character defect, and that is with me each day. Uh, you know, so I can surrender the food a day at a time, and yet it comes up, it manifests in so many other ways. So the question is, even with the back pain or with another uh, example, if you have one, could you speak of how you work with 
that uh, that desire to control or to have the illusion of control in how you bring your program to that? I'm not sure if that's clear to you, but if you have something else to say, though, you've said so much. Thanks so much. Oh, sure. So, okay, so how I work my program spiritually with with issues of such nature like the back. Um, okay, well, I'll give you I'll give you another example is. Uh, I, I have an issue with uh, – I, I had an issue or have I – mean, I'm currently in the process now of a scenario where uh, there is someone that is trying to uh, affect my husband's business. And and, and if, if he were able to succeed, for example, we could be bankrupt. Okay, this is an incredibly stressful scenario. I mean, this is life on life terms, folks. And if I didn't have a program to rely on and a higher power to rely on, then I don't know what I would do. And the reality of this program where it talks about job or no job, you know, wife or no wife, we simply absolutely can be recovered if we work this program. I'm paraphrasing at this point because I can't think of the actual page. You know, we get to a point where we are in our program of recovery that life is, you know, like I said, abstinence and and recovery doesn't guarantee us a, a, a perfect life. And, you know, in this crash course of growing up through working through the 12 steps, because that's pretty much what I had to do, I had to realize, you know, a couple of things. And this is a spiritual, and before it was a spiritual disconnect. A lot of this, like I said, comes back to this spiritual disconnect. And there were two things that I realized. One was that my feelings were not fatal, and two, that life was not fair. And that, again, this whole idea of shaking my fist at God, I could either shake my fist at God and ask, why, why, why? Why am I a compulsive reader? Why do I have this back pain? You know, why is this guy trying to make us bankrupt? You know, why is he coming after us? You know, why, why, why? Or I could ask God to help me get through it. I may never get the answers. I don't know if I'll actually ever have an answer for all of it, but I realize shaking my fist, I was making myself more miserable and more unhappy. And they say wisdom, they talk about in the serenity prayer that, you know, wisdom comes from experience. And my experience has been in the two decades of my recovery in this program that when I do let go, I get results, which is peace of mind. I get serenity. I no longer have to control. My experience has been through recovery. Whenever I try to control something, and, of course, I've tried to control things in recovery. Don't get me wrong. Whenever I try to control things, especially things I cannot change, I become miserable. I become unhappy. Things don't go my way. I'm stressed. I am uptight. But when I surrender and I let go and I believe in a higher power and I believe that and I've done it before, guess what happens? I get better. I get peaceful. I get serene. Do I have the final answer as to why? No, but I don't need to know why anymore if I'm okay where I'm at now. And that's what the surrender does. It makes me okay where I am now, even though the situations around me haven't changed. Because I don't know what's going to happen down the road with this person who's doing this. I don't have any control over this person. And I, you know, being fighting, fighting it and being angry or trying to control it or dictate to the lawyers what to do when I don't know what, you know what I mean? I'm not a lawyer. Talk about trying to control, that only makes me miserable and unhappy. So if what works before 
by letting go, then I'm going to do that again. I'm going to let go. I'm going to let go. Especially when it comes to issues of control. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big issue for not just you, for me. It's for all of us. You know, that self-will really is about control. It's about control. So we have to learn to let go. And if we can't, it's a spiritual disconnect. And I have to constantly be pointed back to my experience, which says, when I let go, I'm happier and I'm more serene and able to handle the situation regardless of the outcome of the circumstances. I hope that helps. Tremendously. So glad I asked and you answered. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Maria. Hi, Maria in Ohio. Thank you very much for your share this morning. You mentioned something about step zero before, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how you work that into a program, if you do, with new sponsees who are chomping at the bit to get into step one. Okay. Um, again, that's, this, is, uh, this is my experience, strength and hope. This is not something that's written in, you know, either 12 and 12 or the big book, but I believe very strongly, you know, what it talks about in the big book is that the person has to have their brain cleared. You know, they talk about in the big book about having to send someone to a treatment center to have their brain cleared, you know, or not talking to someone when you're going to do 12-step work until it's, you know, not while they're drinking type of thing. You know, you wouldn't try to convert someone to be who's in the middle of drinking, you know, when they're in the middle of active addiction. You know, you get them after the fact. And I think for me the um, the step zero, I mean, I've heard it around the room for a number of years and I just adopt it in my working with my sponsees is because to me, you know, when I'm, you know, saying I'm binging and working the program is like saying I'm, I'm a little bit pregnant. You know, there's kind of like nothing, in, you know, that's not real. And so why I say it's so important to a new person who's, you know, dying to get in the steps, yes, we are absolutely going to get in the steps. We're going to work through the big book, you know, that gift of desperation that you have, that action, everything. Right now we're going to channel that into what is the boundaries, what are the basics here, because we have to eat every day. We can't put the plug in the jug like an alcoholic can. We have to find and define, like I said before, what is abstinent and what is not. We need to know what the triggers are. What are the triggers? For me, it was sugar, flour, volume. For me, volume was a very tricky one, but it was a big one because eating volume triggered for me, especially as a bulimic, triggered, triggered that compulsion. I also knew that when I ate sugar, I was off to the races. I could not stop just like an alcoholic, sugar and high-fat flour foods. Just, it, it, it triggered it. So those, some of those were clear, some were not. And that was something that I, I used the sponsee's energy at that point to focus on what are we defining abstinence as. I also make sure that they have a food plan that's healthy from a nutritionist that, is a, that understands the concepts of the 12 steps and the, and the program of a Reader's Anonymous, that, that they have a food plan that puts boundaries around, um, boundaries around them so that they're not triggered by the mental obsession. Clearly, you take the sugar and the things that cause a physical allergy out, but you have to have some sort of boundaries, and that's why that has to happen first so that the brain, the flaw, you know, the fog can be cleared. Because if I'm constantly working off the allergy, you know, where I'm just shoving the food in my mouth, how can I work the program? I can't. So I have to be able to say, to what I say to the sponsee basically is I say, let's get a food plan, let's get some boundaries around your food, let's write down what your triggers are, let's get that started, 
you know, my sponsees, uh, you know, they commit food to me until I, they understand and I understand what their what their food plan is, and uh, and I know that they're committed to it. So that's why it's very very important in my humble opinion. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Amy, you have time for one more, or should we wrap now? Uh, is there one more? Sure. Okay. It's Katie. I would like to ask. Katie, go ahead. I would like to ask you: Do you actually, for these twenty-five years, open the big book on a daily basis? I'm sorry, I missed the first part that came before "open the book on a daily basis." Yes, for twenty, for twenty-five years, you are engaged in the program. So do you actually open designate time on a daily basis to open the big book? Oh, what an awesome question. Yes, absolutely. This is a one-day-at-a-time program. My sponsor used to say the one who has the most abstinence is the one who got up earliest. I firmly believe in living this program one day at a time and that we're recovered, you know, our recovery is contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual maintenance daily, 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 daily. So, yes, I am absolutely positively in the big book. I am in the 12 and 12 every day. Look, I got to eat every day. I got to deal with my potentially my disease every day. So, therefore, I am in my recovery every day. I have established a routine of recovery. You know, they say um, repetition is the father of learning. And uh, routine, discipline, structure, repetition, these are things that are part of my vocabulary when it comes to this program of recovery. I need to be reading this literature every single day to remind me what it is that I have, what it is that I've surrendered, you know, what it is that I have, the disease of compulsive overeating, what I surrendered, that I'm powerless, and what I need to do, work these steps, stay spiritually fit, stay connected with my higher power. That's what I do on a daily basis. I get up in the morning, I get on my knees, I thank God, and I ask God for a day of abstinence. I have a day, I have a time for um, where I take time for myself in the morning before the kids get up, where I'm reading in the 12 and 12 or the big book. Throughout the day, I am I'm trying to pause and use restraint. And at night, I'm doing a 10-step to review. That doesn't mean I can't do a 10-step during the day, but I do an official 10th slash 11th step at night. This is a routine of discipline. This is like drinking water every day to stay alive. This is my program, and I absolutely do do it on it. I do not rest on my spiritual laurels. I absolutely not do not. And in order to do that, and this is a great boatload of time, folks. It's just part of my routine now. It's just like breathing. It's just like drinking water. It's just what I do. I wouldn't change it any more than a person who needs dialysis. It's just what you've got to do. It's just part of my life now, and it's what I do. And just by doing that, I get all the wonderful rewards that this program has to offer. And they are absolutely unbelievable. This program is so incredible. It is so awesome. And it truly does work if you work it, but beyond your wildest imagination. So that was a great question. Thank you so much. Every day, every day, every day. Thank you so much. Since I'm experiencing in the last decade, but I just wonder if that's what we are all doing so I guess you answered my question. Yes, we are all awake early to understand it's a daily retreat. That's right. That's right. I'm just another bozo on the bus. We're all doing it together. Thank you. Thank you, Skadia, for the question. Thank you to all who directed questions this morning to our speaker. And, of course, Amy, thank you.
for your insights and your experience, strength, and hope this morning, a very potent message and a message of hope. And I will now close today's meeting in the way that A Vision for You always closes its meetings, and that's from the reading on page 164 in our big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.